the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. Website, you also find the podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The protests against uh, lockdown policies are happening all over the country this weekend. Washington State, 2,500 people. San Diego area protest uh, over the closures of uh, beaches and walking trails. Phoenix, a couple coming up May 1, one in Chicago at the Thompson Center, one in Springfield again. We're waiting to hear what Governor Pritzker is going to do with respect to any extension of the shelter-in-place order. The consent of the governed, you need that for legitimacy, starting to fracture for politicians that want to maintain a draconian hold on their constituents. And one of the other things that is tiresome, and I think, frankly, this is one of the reasons why people are starting to lose their patience, the snitch culture. Rather than working in solidarity with your neighbor, you have politicians encouraging people to snitch on one another. Bad precedent to set. And Bill de Blasio is explaining, you know, the particulars of just how you can snitch on your neighbor. We still know there's some people need to get the message. And that means sometimes making sure the enforcement is there to educate people and make clear we got to have social distancing. So. Now it is easier than ever when you see a crowd, when you see a line that's not distanced, when you see a supermarket that's too crowded, anything, you can report it right away so we can get help there to fix the problem. And now it's as simple as taking a photo. All you got to do is take the photo and put the location with it and bang, send a photo like this and we will make sure that enforcement comes right away. Text the photo to 311 692 and action will ensue. Uh, you just text a photo to de Blasio and he dispatches uh, Beria, the head of the secret police in New York City, to come have a conversation with you and your family. Put that picture in your permanent file. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Kim Cole. He is the sheriff of Mason County, Michigan. He is one of the four sheriffs, at least that's what we've seen so far, four sheriffs, four county sheriffs in Michigan who sent a, a note, posted a letter saying they are not going to enforce the strictures of Governor Whitmer's much uh, discussed executive order that bans private gatherings and and all the rest of it, that they're going to make judgments as law enforcement officers on a case by case basis. They're not just going to follow orders as it goes. Sheriff Cole, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So you and your colleagues, fellow county sheriffs, what was the impetus for you uh, all to say, uh, look, we're going to use our judgment as law enforcement officers. We're not going to be knocking down doors to make sure families are social distancing and the neighbors aren't over. This all started probably last fall 
Virginia's passed those gun regulations, you know, a lot of people across America, 100,000 plus in Michigan, raised eyebrows to Virginia and said, what is going on? And then overnight, it seemed like a Second Amendment movement started here in Michigan. They were well organized. And there are 83 Second Amendment sanctuary movements going on, one in each county throughout the state, one such in my county. I met with the organizer of our local Second Amendment group. I I said, Herb, can I ask you why you're doing this? And I was mainly trying to encourage him to, you know, follow the rules. Don't go out and get in people's faces. Don't show up at commissioners' homes and, you know, knocking on their doors and confronting them in public places. He looks up and he's got tears in his eyes. And he says, Sheriff, a baker in Colorado ought to be able to make a cake for whoever he wants. The state shouldn't be allowed to step into his bakery and order him to make a cake that's against his religious beliefs. He goes, I fought for the greatest military in the world for a person's individual rights, and that's not what I fought for. And I'm like, wow, this goes way deeper than just some people that want to keep their guns, and it's a chance for them to send a short message. These guys are in it for the long haul. So I said, Herb, just be careful, do the right thing, be respectful of other people. And he said, you know, you're welcome to come to any of our meetings. So I went, and there was a room full of fellas, ladies and fellas, and they were all just hardworking, middle-class people. And they were like, we have been pushed, our rights have been infringed upon enough, and we're not going to take it anymore. And I'm like, okay. You know, Lansing started having some legislative discussions about some stricter gun laws that really weren't going to go anywhere because <clears throat> we are a conservative state in the on the state level but only by four or five in the House and maybe a half a dozen or less in the Senate. So those measures weren't going to go anywhere. Like they wanted to eliminate open carry in Michigan, and if you were part of a militia, you had to register your name with your local sheriff or the state police. So the ground started to shake, and then the virus hit. And the the virus isn't anybody's fault, but the virus hits, and the governor says, you know, we need to do things, we need to stay home, we need to distance, and all these CDC guidelines, and it was all good stuff. and everybody was on board. The initial order for stay home, stay safe was 14 days, and that was good stuff, right? And then after about day nine, the governor says, you know, we might have to extend it out 70 days, the the emergency declaration. But she didn't say, and I don't think she meant, that means you have to stay in your homes for 70 days, but that's all people heard. And then people started getting worked up. Then the stay home order comes down, and it's like she did the second wave, which was really restrictive. That was where... You couldn't have anybody who doesn't reside in your household over. And then people really got fired up. And I don't think those who are elected to serve us on a state level really realize it's the uniformed policemen and women that are standing in that gap facing the brunt of the backlash. And all people wanted to hear was that somebody is going to protect them. Somebody's going to stand up for them. I've gotten a lot of really good, kind responses, and I've gotten some not-so-kind responses. And I'm okay with even the not-so-kind responses because that's protected under the First Amendment. I just wish those critics would look three amendments further at the fourth. That's what I'm trying to protect is them on their private property. I, I just think we're going in a bad way when police can walk on your property because you have too many cars in your driveway, according to a neighbor on, on your street. And it just seems silly to me. There's something else that uh, Whitmer said that was troubling as she doubled down, tripled down on the order that she sent, that she uh, Mm -hmm. instituted. And that was essentially, hey, look, 
What's the big deal about seeds and these other matter, the raking leaves, raking your neighbor's leaves who can't rake her leaves? Uh, we got snow coming. We don't need to worry about this for a few weeks because of the snow. It, it, it's a remarkable statement. She's yeah. essential. She doesn't understand, I don't think, that she's saying your constitutional rights really rise or fall with pragmatism. Yeah, there's been some, um, you know, that rally that they had in Lansing Wednesday, I don't think anybody expected that to be as big as it was. And the governor at her press conference that day said, well, because these guys came out and they weren't social distancing and several of them didn't have masks on, we may have to extend the stay-at-home order. And people stopped listening at that point. And she went on to say, we want to open the state up as quick as possible. But they stopped listening when she said, we may have to extend it out because of the people that came to Lansing because they touched gas tank nozzles on their way, fueling their cars up, and they bought food in, at restaurant drive throughs and just stirs the anger even more. And that's what us four sheriffs are really trying to get the word out. Look, we're going to protect you in our county when it comes to your constitutional rights. We're going to go to the calls, but understand there's collateral damage here, okay? We have responded to eight complaints involving executive order violations since the order's been out in our county. We're a county of about 28,000 people. We have 15 deputies that work the roads. We take probably 6,000 reports a year. We're not a big area, but eight complaints of potential violations of the governor's orders, that's a fair amount. But in that same time, we've taken 19 domestic violence calls. We take maybe 25 a year. There's something else here, too, if I, if I could just interrupt. I just want sure. to go back yeah, to yeah. The essential, non-essential. So in Michigan, essential Liquor, lottery, marijuana, abortion. So if, right. if, if I'm designated as non-essential and you're telling me those four industries are essential, that's going to rub me the wrong way, too. And I wonder if you're getting a little bit of that feedback. Yeah, we are. You know, my wife is a infection control specialist and OSHA compliance coordinator for like 35 dental centers across Michigan. And they've been deemed non-essential. But they have like 10 or 11 centers open throughout the state for emergency dental procedure. All right. And so many people are scared over this virus, you know, the hype of the virus. And it's bad. There's no doubt about it. It's bad. But several of the employees for these dental these dental centers are saying, you know, we might not want to come back to work. So they're looking at closing several of these centers. And these centers service fixed and low-income families. So what's going to happen eight months down the road when these dental centers – for that's just one example. What mm -hmm. happens when they can't open? Who's going to provide dental care to the people that were relying on these centers and that were doing it based on income? That's one of the potential fallouts. And that's another thing. Yeah, you're right. People are saying, I can't buy tomato seeds, but I can go to the marijuana store and buy my, buy my dope. And <laughs> uh, Kim, Kim Cole, he is the sheriff of Mason County, Michigan. Sheriff Cole, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, helping us get the message out. Yeah, be safe out there. Take care. It's going to be a cool night. Just let me hold you by the firelight. If it don't feel right, you can Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and a uh, very interesting interview conducted by a British journalist of Johan Gesecki, who is the former top epidemiologist for the country of Sweden. He now he's retired. He's now a consultant to Sweden in terms of their response to the COVID-19 outbreak, as well as to the World Health Organization. And he uh, defends 
Sweden's approach to the COVID-19 outbreak, which obviously, as uh, most everybody knows now, is uh, quite dissimilar to the response from other EU nations, other, other Western nations. No formal shutdown. You have partial shutdown, some crowd limiting that came on a little bit uh, further along in the outbreak, but it hasn't taken the approach that its uh, Nordic neighbors have taken, or as I said, its uh, EU compadres have taken. And Gusecki starts with, uh, you know, here's what we know about the science behind uh, controlling the spread of pandemics, all of the measures that have been taken. Here's about the only thing we know is particularly helpful. The main reason is that we or the Swedish government decided early in January that the measures we should take against the pandemic should be evidence-based. And when you start looking around for the measures that are being taken now by different countries, you find that very few of them have the shred of evidence base. Uh, But one we know that's known for 150 years or more, and that is washing your hands is good for you and good for others when you're in an epidemic. But the rest, like border closures, school closures, social distancing, there's almost no science behind most of these. Almost no science behind most of these, including social distancing, as effective for stopping the ultimate spread. That's the context here. Slowing down, well, sure, if you put everybody in an isolation chamber, you're going to slow it down. What happens when they come out, particularly at this stage, the stage at which it was caught in most countries? Remember, this cannot be stressed enough. Bending the curve, all of these mitigation tactics are about buying time, not stopping the spread. Buying time so the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. Buying time so you can get to a therapeutic and ultimately a vaccine. Buying time, not eliminating the spread. And so for all the things that we don't know, and uh, the experience of all the things we didn't know in previous viral outbreaks, how long it took to get even a reasonable range of what actually had occurred in terms of infections and hospitalizations and fatalities. Gusecki makes the point, basically, you can uh, hew to your models as the justification for the choices that you've made. Talk to me in a year and see if uh, we're not in a relatively similar place, Sweden versus other similarly situated countries, say, for example, Nordic countries. And he tackles the models, too, specifically that Imperial College London model, because it was so influential for whatever reason. You know, the hysteria got out front of the science and any notes of caution. It made the U.K. move away from the herd immunity strategy that Sweden is pursuing to the shutdown strategy that most of the rest of the West is pursuing. The paper was never published scientifically. It's not peer-reviewed, which a scientific paper should be. It's just an internal departmental report from Imperial. And it's fascinating. I don't think any other scientific endeavor has made such an impression on the world as that rather uh, debatable paper. So is your um, impression that it was overly uh, pessimistic? As yes. To- oh, yes. Very much so. And Gusecki also presents a question that uh, perhaps uh, policymakers in the West hadn't considered and are now attempting to reconcile it. When I first heard, which is now six weeks ago, about the different 
draconic measures that were taken, I asked myself, how are they going to climb down from that one? When will they open the schools again? What should be the criterion to open the schools? Did any one of the strong and very decisive politicians in Europe think about how do we get out of this when they introduced it? And I think that would be a problem for the UK as well. Oh, yeah. That's a problem for the West. It's a problem for the West in general. Because now, with the argument uh, sort of falling along the political fault lines in America, you have all of the go-to arguments, particularly of the left and the identitarians, presenting themselves in opposition to opening up the economy to the extreme. What does the extreme sound like? If you support opening the economy, you're a racist who wants black and brown people to die. Think I'm kidding? Michael Harriet from The Root, that's the outlet, on with Joy Reid. Of course, this was suborned by Joy Reid show on MSNBC yesterday. Yeah, see, again, I disagree with the notion that we shouldn't be covering this because I think it is more than just I don't care about these black and brown people who are dying. I think that what they're saying quite clearly, when you see the numbers, when you see the statistics, when you see the CDC data is I want more black and brown people to die. Like that, that can't if you want the government to open up, then you want more black and brown people to die. We see it happening in real time. We see it in Donald Trump's tweets. We see it in the data. There can be no other outcome if you open up what they call their society or the, the business or the country. If unless you see more but, but black I mean, and brown but, people but, die, you think uh, we're progressing towards a more thoughtful, reasonable conversation Trying to strike this balance that's not easy to strike. Yeah. Uh, it's a sad commentary that Michael Harriet doesn't think black Americans participate in the economy. Sad commentary on what the welfare state has done to the black community, what uh, one party leadership ruling, uh, lording over in major urban centers has done to black and brown Americans who are disproportionately located in urban centers that have been disproportionately hit by. COVID-19, and particularly as Tony Fauci discussed, and we all we've known for a long time, all you have to do is look at the life expectancy numbers. Uh, Those on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, more likely to be less healthy, more likely to have greater exposure to the worst of COVID-19. Sad commentary, but that's the default position. Hmm. Going back to, guess we'll pick that up more a little bit later in the show, but it just, just shows you to the question that Gusecki asked, how do you climb back down from it? How do you reopen? Who wants to stand up in the face of being called a racist? Not too many people in this country. The president will, as he's shown. A lot of others won't. Here's what uh, Gusecki said about uh, COVID-19, though, and the response is... Uh, unvarnished opinion i think actually should i tell you what i really think i I almost never do this i think what we're seeing is a tsunami of a usually quite mild disease which is sweeping over europe and some countries do this and some countries do that and some countries do don't do that and in the end there was very very little difference so when you say it's a usually quite mild disease are you what do you mean by that that most people who get it will never even notice they were infected. So does that mean that you think the actual fatality rate of this disease is is much lower than the numbers that have been talked about? Much, much lower. 
So do you have, uh, have you made any speculations as to what sort of um, zone the real fatality rate might be in? Uh, I think it will be like a severe influenza season, the same as, an, which would be on an order of 0.1% maybe. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Nancy Pelosi on with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday saying this about how we get the economy open and going again. Because what we have to do is uh, is is shelter in place. That is really the answer. Testing, tracing, treatment, shelter in place. Uh, And I do think uh, that it's uh, unfortunate. But, you know, people will do what they do. But the fact is we're all impatient. We all want out. Uh, But uh, what they're doing is really unfortunate because what is great, though, are the American people. The American people know uh, that the good health of themselves and their families and their loved ones is what is important. Quarantine is the answer to opening up our economy sooner. What's great is the American people accept those protesting, of course, and uh, closing is the way to open our economy. Do you follow that? Quarantine is the way to open our economy. That's closing. Closing is the way to open. This is uh, from the woman who, in addition to Dove Bars, brought you some classic Uh, treatises on economics like unemployment insurance is stimulative. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Wright. He is the Neff Family Chair of Political Economy at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and author of the upcoming Financial Exclusion, How Competition Can Fix a Broken System. Robert Wright, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. And uh, you're uh, coming to us from uh, one of the... few states that uh, is not in formal lockdown and and has not been much to the uh, criticism that has been uh, thrown the way of Governor Nome up there. Yes, that's right. The weather has uh, has kept us locked down, but uh, spring has returned, so we're uh, we're back at it. And we can't produce everything for all of America, though, unfortunately. You're right. That's a, that's right. That's a tall order for uh, South Dakota. What's um, what's your reaction uh, as a as a professor of political economy to uh, the uh, uh, political uh, economic views of uh, Nancy Pelosi? Uh, well, it sounds Orwellian, doesn't it? Well, um, like, like 1984. One one perspective. I mean, you uh, write at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research that this is the worst public policy the shutdown policy, worst public policy in the century. Why do you say? Um, Well, actually, uh, I put that in as since slavery. Um, But I think the editor thought that that might be be misconstrued to mean that I think it's as bad as slavery. 
Uh, it's not as bad as slavery, um, but it's getting pretty close. Um, that she calls this a quarantine is a, um, you know, just destroying the English language. A quarantine is when you keep sick people away from well people. This is not a quarantine. This is a police state. And um, the approach that uh, you would suggest, uh, I mean, there's some historical context. This isn't the first viral outbreak we've ever experienced. Uh, the approach that uh, you would have suggested at the outset, were you an economic or policy advisor to the president, something akin to what South Dakota did? Or was there a time where shutdowns were appropriate and that time has since passed? What's your general perspective? Um, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult and evolving situation. So uh, like in my most recent piece, you know, I, I create this faux speech that uh, any governor or other politician is, is free to use. And it basically says, look, we didn't know what was going on. Uh, we shut the economy down out of, um, you know, the old notion that it's um, better safe than sorry. Uh, but that was a month ago. We now know a lot more about this uh, disease and the effects on the economy uh, are very clear at this point. Um, so it should be clear to any rational um, person that, the the cost of the lockdown far exceed uh, any benefits that we're getting uh, from it. Well, and you know, let's let's hold it yeah, there. Okay. When when we when we come back with uh, Professor Wright, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, human psychology because uh, per your uh, m- most recent piece, you go through a little bit of uh, of Stanley Milgram's work. Um, we may add the Stanford Prison Experiment to the list as well. More with Robert Wright, Neff Family Chair of Political Economy at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, author of the upcoming Financial Exclusion, How Competition Can Fix a Broken System. We'll be right back. She said, don't hand me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Robert Wright. He is the Neff Family Chair of Political Economy at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Author of the upcoming Financial Exclusion, How Competition Can Fix a Broken System. And, uh, Professor Wright, you uh, talk about, um, well, sort of the madness of crowds, to borrow a phrase, and uh, think about, you, you, you encourage us in your piece at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research to uh, think about uh, the Stanley Milgram experiments, why people followed orders during the Holocaust. Um, why uh, do you find that to be relevant to the discussion of the response to COVID-19? Uh, well, because uh, it seems like people are just um, following what uh, the government uh, scientific experts are telling them, rather than thinking for themselves and rather than searching for uh, other views. Um, the epidemiologists who make the most sense to uh, economists like those at uh, AIER uh, are the fellows uh, out at Stanford, and they've been saying 
you know, from the beginning that the modeling is wrong. So we looked into the background of uh, Neil Ferguson, um, not the political economist one, but the, the one who was an epidemiologist uh, at Imperial College of London, and he's been predicting pandemics for decades, right? ones that never went anyplace. Uh, and I critique the, um, you know, the New York Times version uh, of his model for South Dakota uh, and basically said there's no way that this can, this can happen uh, because, you know, most people care about their own health and they know, you know, what to do to, to, to protect it and to protect themselves. And so, you know, but by this point, South Dakota is supposed to have hundreds of deaths, uh, according to their model. And uh, last check, uh, they we've had seven. And, and we're not a lockdown state. Right. And, and going back right? to, and, and going back to Milgram's experiments, too. I mean, what the, the, the takeaway, the disturbing takeaway was just how barbaric people were were uh, the majority of people were willing to act if doing so under the authority. And uh, you su- yeah. and you suggest, you know, what we have here is a is sort of a different version of authority. It's a, it's, it's a softer authority. Now, instead of authority like a, a totalitarian, we uh, we defer to authority in the form of an expert like a scientist. Right. Right. Which is, you know, the, the, the experiment that um, Milgram ran, 65 uh, percent of the of the test subjects were willing to administer what they thought was a lethal dose of electricity to another human being, uh, one that they knew and had met uh, simply because a uh, fellow in a white lab coat uh, said that they they had to, uh, and they went ahead and, and, and did it anyway. Hmm. There was another uh, experiment by uh, Solomon Ash uh, that shows the um, importance of peer pressure, where people were shown... Uh, lines of different lengths, and then, you know, asked to pick out the ones that um, were of the same length. Uh, They had actors in who picked the wrong line. Uh, So by the time it got to the test subject, a quarter of them were willing to to identify the wrong line uh, simply because uh, the people before them had done the same. So I think that that's playing out on social media right now, uh, where people are just kind of blindly following what they see other other people on on Twitter or Facebook or what whatever um, uh, saying, instead of again thinking for themselves and uh, looking at all of the available information and not just that that's coming through other lens of the of the CDC and the uh, HWO. Yeah, the, but the, the, yeah, the WHO. Uh, paraphrasing Hannah aren't uh, it's the banality of being a lemming it uh, it seems uh, that uh, we're uh, we're particularly um, uh, susceptible to that's particularly contagious it would seem yes yep yep and um, my colleague at AIER just came out with a piece today where he um, brings up the the psychological notion of displacement Uh, and that occurs when people can't control something um, like the spread of, of COVID-19. Um, so they try to control that which they can control, like this uh, crazy municipality out in California that put sand in a, uh, in a skate park to keep kids from going there and skateboarding. 
Right. Have you heard about that? Yeah, right, right. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. or I mean, you see it even even um, uh, culturally, even in states or, or communities where you're not required to wear a mask. But it's, you know, it's been encouraged as part of the guidelines now. And so people reporting, you know, uh, confrontations and 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 uh, askance looks because they're not wearing a mask and somebody else is when they pass each other on a on a sidewalk or something like this. It's it's the idea. Uh, it's it's also the snitch culture, all these hotlines and yeah. de Blasio telling people to take pictures and send them to me and then I'll dispatch a comrade Beria to uh, go visit them. Uh, it's all of yeah. the, it's it's the idea that you're just you're making private citizens the sentinels of the state. Yep. Yeah, it all boils down to uh, paternalism. Uh, last year, about this time, I uh, reported on some experimental uh, economics uh, that was just uh, coming out um, uh, about um, what's called what are called repugnant uh, markets, um, and uh, those guys have um, you know moved into seeing just how far. People are willing to impose their values uh, on on others, uh, and they do it in, in ingenious ways. Um, but basically, like the Milgram experiment and the Ash experiment, what's it, what it shows is that most people are willing to impose their own their own views and values on others. Well, right, and and then the number of people that per the Ash experiment that are willing to go along and be an active participant in their own destruction. It's uh, it's discouraging or at least concerning. That's for sure. He is Robert Wright, professor at uh, Augustana University, the Net Family Chair of Political Economy at the Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, author of the upcoming Financial Exclusion, How Competition Can Fix a Broken System. Professor Wright, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take, Take care. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, golf is uh, leading the way. Uh, first sport to announce uh, its return beginning in June. No fans, but uh, there will be uh, tournaments played. Golf for perhaps uh, better situated than most of the other professional sports to do so. But nonetheless, seeing as I live in, the, in America's uh, genteel banana republic, that would be the state of Illinois, we still have uh, no golf courses open here, even as those who've extended their shelter-in-place orders for three weeks past Illinois' current one, like Tony Evers in Wisconsin, reopened the golf courses last week. Minnesota reopened the golf courses last week, uh, over the weekend as well. And uh, Rocco Mediate, PGA Tour Pro, great great player. Uh, he uh, was the first uh, Minnesotan to tee off, uh, so that's sort of fun. Then we have this. Now, but I did play in Indiana, so again, we do have other states around us that are, well, taking a more balanced approach to life, considering the relative uh, lack of evidence of serious uh, transmission, 
serious numbers of, of people ca- uh, transmitting coronavirus uh, when they're in an outside setting, low viral load, as the uh, phraseology goes. Nonetheless, uh, John Daly, the great uh, John Daly, well, hey, he won two majors. I guess that constitutes great. He uh, has a, a homebrew remedy for COVID-19. So you want to take a listen to this so you can uh, perhaps uh, graduate from HCQ or vitamin D, uh, even uh, await uh, the clinical trials of remdesivir. Uh, John Daly suggests you try this at home. Hey, everybody. Trump Goff, man, a home away from home. Hope everybody's being safe and being careful out there. Hopefully this will be over soon. But just want to tell all our Trump people that we love you. And uh, POTUS is doing a hell of a job. And I kind of figured a way to beat this coronavirus thing. You know, you just take, it's just, you know, a bottle of Belvedere. I only drink one drink a day. It just happens to be a bottle. Drink that down. Take a little sip of McDonald's Diet Coke, folks. And that's the lesson of the day. That'll kill anything. God bless each and every one of you. And God bless the United States of America. And God bless Donald Trump. And y'all take care. Grip and rip it out. John Daly is endlessly entertaining, not just because of his haircut. The uh, Belvedere plus McDonald's Diet Coke. Notice the brands. It's not just a bottle of vodka. It's a bottle of Belvedere. It's not just Diet Coke. It's McDonald's brand Diet Coke. So you may want to uh, you may want to give that a whirl. And uh, when you do, then relax. If you drink that much vodka, you should be relaxing at home, sheltering in place. And you can check out so long as you can stay awake from the vodka, not the film. No Safe Spaces, nosafespaces.com. This is the number one political documentary of 2019 put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that uh, details how free speech is under assault in America and what you can do to join the fight on behalf of free minds and free speech on college campuses, on social media platforms, in Hollywood and everywhere else. Check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the, the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com so you can get podcasts as well as Spotify and iTunes and uh, social media. It's at Dan Prof Show on Twitter, on Facebook, at Prof Dan on Instagram. Uh, I wanted to uh, pick up on an aspect of the Trump task force briefings that uh, has now been repeated and just uh, tackle whether or not this is judicious by the president. Uh, Sunday's task force briefing, the president did what he had done last week, which is present a video clip for the press to consume and the public for that matter. Is this uh, just a bit ridiculous? Is this just propagandizing to play a clip from Andrew Cuomo as the president did? Well, let's listen to the clip. And then perhaps if when you put it in the context of the disinformation campaigns going on on all these channels that aren't covering the task force briefings, going on when these channels are not covering the task force briefings, I should say, the rest of the broadcast day, maybe you'll have a little different perspective. Maybe you'll be a little bit less resistant to to, uh, adopting the posture of the press corps that this is a shameless politicking during a uh, policy briefing. The Andrew Cuomo clip that President Trump played 
giving the New York governor's assessment of the combined federal, state, and local response in New York. Uh, we had to double the ho- hospital capacity in New York State. Uh, that's what all the experts said. Uh, President brought in the Army Corps of Engineers. They built uh, 2,500 beds at Javits that uh, Michael and Northwell were operating. It was a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, close to 1,000 people have gone through Javits. Luckily, we didn't need the 2,500 beds, but all the projections said we did need it, and more, by the way. Uh, So these were just extraordinary efforts and acts of mobilization. And uh, the federal government stepped up and was a great partner, and I'm the first one to say it. Uh, We needed help, and they were there. State and local governments were fantastic. The hospital system was fantastic. Fantastic. New Yorkers were fantastic. And that is an undeniable fact. Just look at what they said was going to happen. CDC, Coronavirus Task Force, Cornell, McKinsey, all of them. And they had a line up here. And the actual line is down here. What do you owe the variants to? Heroic efforts on behalf of people as facilitated by government, federal and state. Uh, The people we lost are the people we couldn't save. Not for lack of trying and not for lack of uh, doing everything that we could do as a society, not only as a government and as a healthcare system. Undeniable, the combined federal state response. You heard Andrew Cuomo in his own words about the federal response to New York State the epicenter of the outbreak. So why would uh, Trump need to play that? It's just self-congratulatory. Or is it, again, to counter the disinformation campaigns going on the rest of the broadcast day? Let me enter some evidence into the record for your consideration. Chuck Schumer on with Jake Tapper on Sunday. Well, look, I think our governor and our mayor have done a great job, and I think most of America agrees. It's very hard when you don't have the federal cooperation, when you have the president early on saying it's a hoax, or it'll go away, or don't worry about it, to get things done. I think our state and our city have done a terrific, terrific job, given that we were the epicenter. San Francisco ordered schools closed on March 12th. Ohio did the same with five confirmed cases. Uh, On March 15th, de Blasio ordered New York City schools to close with 329 cases. A New York statewide stay-at-home order was announced on March 20th, the day after California You don't think more could have been done earlier? I mean, other states were taking action. Look, again, we were the epicenter. There were so many things to do. Getting ventilators so people wouldn't die was important. Getting the PPE for the healthcare workers was important. There were many things that were very, very important. And as I said, I think both Cuomo and de Blasio get very high marks for how they've handled this. Uh Uh-huh. For epicenter from Pagliacci, or epicenter, as uh, Americans pronounce it epicenter right of the outbreak you heard from cuomo you've heard uh, bill de blasio say similar things about the federal response at least with respect to the outbreak now of course he's now moved on de blasio has to banging his tin cup around for federal dollars before he gives the high sign to reopen new york at some point in the not too distant future i presume but then you have chuck schumer of course high marks for my fellow travelers and no response Hard to have a better response when you've got no federal support. It's 180 degrees from what Andrew Cuomo said. It's just remarkable. And so you'll perhaps give President Trump some consideration when he tries to use the actual person's words, who's writing point, that would be Governor Cuomo, to respond to the disinformation you're getting from 
Democrat leaders on the Hill from their D.C. press corps handmaidens. Let me give you another example. Here's Tony Fauci on Friday talking about testing in the context of saying that we have enough testing materials to get the country through the phase one reopening, you know, phase one of the reopening. Testing is a part, an important part of a multifaceted way that we are going to control and ultimately end this outbreak. So please don't anyone interpret it that I'm down testing. But the emphasis that we've been hearing is essentially testing is everything, and it isn't. It's the kinds of things that we've been doing, the mitigation strategies that are an important part of that. And now Virginia Governor Ralph KKK Northam from the Virginia Minstrel Party on again with Jake Tapper responding to whether or not he has the testing materials to implement testing at the state level in Virginia. Remember, this is the governor who extended the shelter in place order June 10th, like two weeks ago. Talk about draconian. If it weren't for Gretchen Whitmer, there'd probably be more conversation about KKK Northam. Remember on testing, as has been repeated at these task force briefings ad nauseum, like the rest of the emergency response, federal support, state management, local implementation. Jake, that's just delusional to be making statements like that. We we have been fighting uh, every day for PPE, uh, and we've got some supplies now coming in. We've been fighting for for testing. Uh, it's not a it's not a straightforward test. We we don't even have enough swabs, believe it or not, and and we're ramping that up. But for the national level to say that we have what we need, uh, and really to to have no guidance uh, to the state uh, levels, uh, it's just irresponsible because we're not there yet. Uh huh. And so Jake Tapper asked the context uh, asked the question in the context of Trump saying you have the testing materials you need, the states do. And Northam saying that's delusional. Do you think the answer would have been different if he had said Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci has said states have the testing materials they need to get through phase one, as Tony Fauci did say on Friday at the task force briefing. Would he have said the same thing if it was with respect to New York and Chuck Schumer, if it was another state or with respect to the federal response where 2020 is fair game? 2020 vision is fair game. 2020 vision after the fact is fair game. Nothing New York State or New York City could have done would have improved the situation. They get high marks. I have no constructive criticism. And I won't ask the questions that are asked of President Trump. The sorts of had you known something you didn't know at the time, would you have made a different decision types of metaphysical questions that the press corps and Democrats are engaged in asking. And the ability to separate the federal resources provided from the president of the United States. It's really something to watch. My home state governor, Governor uh, Jelly Belly Pritzker, is doing the same thing. He acts like the Army Corps of Engineers and the rest of the uh, component parts of the federal response smuggled materials, supplies, PPE out of Washington, D.C. in a Mayflower van like the, uh, under the cover of night, like the Baltimore Colts leaving for Indianapolis. Oh boy, will the president be upset when he finds out. Do you think the president doesn't know? For example, Illinois, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers increased hospital capacity in Chicago by more than 4,000 beds. Chicago, which is one of the metropolitan regions that the task force is watching now, as Deborah Burks has said repeatedly over the weekend, end of last week into the weekend. In addition to the 4,000 beds, according to Rear Admiral John Polochik, who's the you know, point man on the logistics to move product, airlifted 1.1 million 
95 masks, 4.3 million surgical masks, 1.9 million surgical gowns, 65 million surgical gloves, just to Chicago. Also money, CDC funneled $23.7 million to Illinois, $12.2 million to Chicago. HHS awarded another $51.6 million to 45 hospitals across the state with $1.2 billion that followed. And uh, to hear the governor talk about it, like you hear the governor of Virginia, like you hear the Senate minority leader Chuck Schumer talk about it, whatever the, the president and the federal government has done for Democrat-controlled states has occurred in spite of him, not because of him. So when you hear from a Northam or a Pritzker or a Schumer, maybe you'll reconsider why it's important to hear from Andrew Cuomo himself at a Trump task force briefing so the nation hears it with as many people viewing that briefing as compared to uh, Andrew Cuomo press conference in New York, even if it's rebroadcast on CNN. It's important to get this information out for context, not even necessarily in Trump's words, but in the words of his erstwhile political adversary. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Charlie Munger, who's been Warren Buffett's right-hand man for the last thousand years, is 96 years old. Incredible and still sharp as attack, as reported. Uh, he uh, did an interview with Jason Zweig over at uh, Wall Street Journal describing where he is and where he thinks the American economy is. Everybody's just frozen. I would basically say we're like the captain of a ship when the worst typhoon that's ever happened comes. We just want to get through the typhoon, and we'd rather come out of it with a whole lot of liquidity. We're not playing, oh, goody, goody, everything's going to hell. Let's plunge 100% of the reserves into buying businesses. Warren Buffett wants to keep Berkshire safe for people who have 90% of their net worth invested in it. We're always going to be on the safe side. He also goes on to say about everybody just being frozen. The phone is not ringing off the hook. Everybody's just frozen in the position they're in. Nobody in America has ever seen anything like this. The thing is different. This thing is different. Everybody talks as if they know what's going to happen, and nobody knows what's going to happen. Of course we're having a recession. The only question is how big it's going to be and how long it's going to last. I think we do know that this will pass, but how much damage and how much recession and how long it will last, nobody knows. Although he says, I don't think we'll have a long-lasting Great Depression. I think government will be so active that we won't have one like that, but we may have a different kind of mess. All the money printing may start bothering us. Well, that's a very understated way to describe it. And point of fact, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with Mr. Munger about what he thinks extended the Great Depression. Alan Lands who uh, profited in both the 87 and 2008 crashes. The next 45 days may just become the most critical period in U.S. financial history. He uh, suggests uh, he's contrary money manager, which is why he made money in those crises. Even if we execute properly, the recovery will take time, and the best-case scenario is a U-shaped recovery. The much-talked-about V-shaped recovery is no longer in the equation because of the unprecedented combination of negatives with this crisis. Well, I'll take a U over an L. For more on uh, what we can do to get Charlie Munger and and, uh, Warren Buffett off the sidelines, as well as uh, what letter shape the recovery will take, we're pleased to be joined by Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Dan, good to be with you. There's things that we can do, uh, you suggest in uh, your piece about deregulation over at The Spectator, things we can do to try and alter or improve the shape of any projected uh, recovery coming out of the reopening on the deregulation front. Why don't you give us a couple of examples of what you think? Sure. One of the things that has come out of the fight with the virus is that we've learned that a lot of what the government does gets in the way of providing health care to people quickly, timely, uh, inexpensively. We found that the, these laws, well, had them in 30-plus states, certificates of need, that if a hospital wants to add an additional bed or a x-ray machine, they have to get permission from the government and prove that they need this. You can imagine Coca-Cola having to prove that they need another bottling company. And Pepsi gets to lobby the legislature to say no. And this is, it's become a protection racket. Unfortunately, it keeps prices high. It's the reason New York had too few beds. They wrote their own dumb rules, which gave them too few beds. They thought this was uh, saving money. But in point of fact, you end up without the competition you need. Some states are suspending these. They should all be repealed. They keep costs up too high for nursing homes as well as hospitals. We used to have this rule for trucks. If you wanted to drive a truck from Chicago to New York, you had to go get permission from the federal government. And every one of your would-be competitors, anybody who's already in the business, got to vote about whether they liked you. They, they, they would write, no, this is not needed. We could do this. Maybe not until Thursday, but we could do it. Maybe it would cost more, but we could do it. It's not necessary. You know, no certificate of need. We abolished all that, and trucking prices in America dropped 20% by just getting rid of the whole nest of certificate of need examples for trucking. Now we have them for hospitals. The other one is all these permits that you need to be a doctor or a registered nurse or an anesthesiologist. They don't travel easily from state to state. Healthcare and viruses and emergencies like floods, they don't operate on state lines. And they're finding as doctors would move to where they were needed or registered nurses, that they didn't have the permits. They didn't have a, a license. You're not a doctor in our state. You've got to go jump through some hoops. A number of states have said, okay, if you're a doctor in one state, you're a doctor in our state, at least for this emergency. Others have said, well, it'll take us 24 hours, but we'll get you the permit. What 24 hours? Can you imagine your driver's license having to be looked at for 24 hours as you cross state to state? If we want to respond quickly to a virus, we need to have seamless ability to move professionals from one uh, state to another and still have all of their permits. I, I think a doctor's license in one state should be good in all 50 states. If some states got bad licensing rules, I think that governor and legislature would be thrown out. But that's nonsense. We have all sorts of zoning rules to get in the way of home, working at home and home-based businesses. I don't know if people are worried you can set up a pig farm in your backyard or whatever, but it seems to me if you're not blocking traffic, the government shouldn't care whether you're sitting watching TV all day or on a computer working all day at your home. It's none of their business. But will the, will the deregulation come soon enough? Uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board opining yesterday, talk about irony. Uh, our heroes in the medical professional on the front lines could be working at hospitals that are going to be pushed into bankruptcy by government policy. Oxford Economics forecasts 1.5 million, quote unquote, non-essential health workers will lose their jobs this month. Mayo Clinic is cutting physician salaries by 10%. Boston Medical Center is furloughing 10% of its workforce. 
and so on and so forth because all hands on deck for COVID-19 to the exclusion of hip and knee replacements, mastectomies, chemotherapy treatments, and, and, and the like. And you've fundamentally changed the viability, the economic viability of hospital systems across the country. So crying out loud, make part of the hospital for people with the virus, seal it off, and go to work and fix people's knees and everything else. I had an eye operation, which was canceled. What was that all about? You know, I mean, just, I think healthcare is an essential service. And people whose knees don't work should be able to get them fixed. And if you, all hospitals need to do better on all viruses, not just this one, in terms of cleaning and keeping everything antiseptic. That's an important project line often not paid attention to at hospitals. Corn it off, put it in a different room, at a different wing of the, of the hospital. Look, there are a lot of government service fees that are imposed on businesses and workers. Let's knock that down. You know, the idea that you have to pay the government for the right to work in your chosen profession, it's a drain on getting people back to work. Those sorts of fees should be for the cost of filling out the paperwork, and that's it. They should not be ways that the government makes more money. And all doctors' licenses should be good in all 50 states, for crying out loud. I mean, um, there's some real – the other challenges – don't raise taxes. He is Grover Norquist, president of Americans for Tax Reform. Check out his speech. I'll tweet out how deregulation can fuel coronavirus recovery at spectator.org. Grover, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. It's the number one political documentary of 2019. It's No Safe Spaces, produced by our colleague and friend Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, putting together a story of the assault on free speech that's happening in American society on college campuses, through social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. No Safe Spaces uh, details this. It also provides instruction as to what you can do to stand for free minds and free speech in a free society, that free society called America. Check it out now while you have some downtime. Watch it with the family. No Safe Spaces for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. And uh, before we get to our next guest, our friend Joel Kotkin, uh, I wanted to uh, play a clip that I played earlier on the show. This uh, from Joy Reid's show over the weekend on MSNBC. Of course it is. Uh, It's such a dismal statement, a troubling statement on multiple levels. Uh, People need to hear this again, really think about it and discuss it. Michael Harriet, who is a uh, writer for The Root, it's a media outlet, on with Joy Reid on MSNBC, translating what uh, it means for people to say they want to reopen the economy, what the real motivation is. Not uh, getting back to work, not making money, not work as soul craft. What the real motivation for white people is in advocating for a reopening of the economy. Yeah, see, again, I disagree with the notion that we shouldn't be covering this because I think it is more than just I don't care about these black and brown people who are dying. I think that what they're saying quite clearly 
when you see the numbers, when you see the statistics, when you see the CDC data is, I want more black and brown people to die. Like that, that can't, if you want the government to open up, then you want more black and brown people to die. We see it happening in real time. We see it in Donald Trump's tweets. We see it in the data. There can be no other outcome if you open up what they call their society or the, the business or the country. If unless you see more but, but black I mean, and brown people but, die. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Joel Kotkin, internationally recognized author on global economic, political, and social trends, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class, which is an excellent book that I have finished. And uh, I think it dovetails actually into what Michael Harriet said, as identitarian and ignorant as it is, it speaks to somebody speaking for other people, who uh, he believes have no place in uh, the American economy, doesn't it, Joel? You know, first of all, I mean, the statement is so absurd. Right. You know, you can't tell what people are actually, you know, what their motivations are in most cases. Second of all, many of the people who, uh, uh, you know, this this virus does not go around saying, wow, I want to go kill some, you know, minorities. I mean, the, the virus hits people who are vulnerable in one way or the other. And some of those people, by the way, are upper-middle-class whites. I mean, some of the earliest outbreaks were in those uh, commuter uh, sheds in places like Westchester, which, by the way, is um, by some counts the largest, the wealthiest large county in this country, uh, heavily white and Asian. Um, We see the same things going on um, in some of the suburbs uh, near where I grew up on Long Island, uh, New York, um, also very heavily white. Now, Yes, there is greater morbidity among um, minority communities, but among poor people in general, uh, people who have um, various pre-existing conditions, you know, whether it could be diabetes, it could be obesity, it could be a lot of other things. So, I mean, I think one of the things I find so disturbing is that we're in the middle of this pandemic. And, you know, I think there should be a very good debate about what we should do, what we shouldn't do what needs to be done. I mean, clearly the federal government and the state governments did not prepare very well. But the idea that this is another way that we can divide people from each other is, to me, it's quite terrifying. Um, and I wrote about this in, in Quillette. And by the way, this is not just happening in the United States. Similar conflicts are beginning to emerge in Europe. Sure. Uh, you know, where basically you have a, let's face it, if I'm an MSNBC host, or me for that matter, I teach now. I teach remotely. I do talks remotely. I I've been working out of my house, you know, one way or another for almost a half century. I'm okay. I've actually this has been a very good time in terms of business, but it's not okay for for most people. And most people are going to eventually, even those of us who can work at home, are going to find that the companies that that may employ us to do this work, including universities, may, if this continues long enough, may not be able to pay us anymore. So, yes, we've been able to escape some of it, those of us who can work at home. But in the long term, we'll all go down. I mean, essentially, this is really a, you know, what I've been finding really interesting is that some of the, particularly a lot of people on the green um, economy side, they really see this as a dry run for what they want to see. They literally want to see a 20, 30% decline in GDP. Because after all, many of them are themselves 
older, wealthier, already have nice places to live. And, and a lot of those zero population growth types want to see a 20 to 30 percent decline in the global human population, too, while we're at it. Uh, I let, let's let's pick up there because I, w- I want to also get back to this construct that you set up about middle income families in America, the yeomanry versus the clerisy and uh, how that uh, divide will fare coming out of the COVID-19 outbreak. More with Joel Kotkin. Uh, he is a presidential fellow at Urban Futures at Chapman University and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. We'll be right back. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Joel Kotkin, internationally recognized authority on global, economic, political, and social trends, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. And you can get... uh, some hints of uh, what's in uh, the coming of neo-feudalism by checking out his most recent piece at Colette.com called Viral Politics. Uh, what, what about, um, you know, just flying off the conversation we were having before about somebody who is so so uh, despondent over the future of America or his, his future and black people's future in America that he is willing to say the government should, I don't, I don't know exactly, shut down until we close the gap in life expectancy or until the deaths from COVID-19 are properly uh, are, are exactly proportional to the racial distribution of, of uh, in America. It's just, it's just bizarre reactions, but it speaks to a feeling of um, that you're not part of the in crowd in this country. And you sort of deal with that in uh, talking about the, the bifurcated uh, middle sector of American life, the yeomanry versus the clerisy. Just kind of recap what that is and uh, how you think this will, that that divide uh, will fare coming out of this outbreak. Well, essentially, um, the yeomanry is what we might call the traditional middle class. It's, you know, the, the, the skilled artisan. It's the, the, the small shopkeeper. It's, it's the uh, the person who maybe owns um, a small service business or a small manufacturing company, um, an independent trucker, that, that whole group of people who basically um, run businesses, own small properties, um, and are intimately involved in the private sector economy, where when the economy gets shut down, they, they just get obliterated. That's the yeomanry, and they're they're right. They're really going to have a rough time with this. Um, and by the way, I don't think the, the government's response uh, um, has been particularly good for them at all. The second um, group, the clerisy, is really those people who work for the government, work in what might be thought of as protected institutions, nonprofits, uh, universities, um, at, at least for the time being. Um, the, uh, of course, the upper bureaucracy, um, the large part of the medical industry. So I find it really interesting that you have these people who, I, you know, and I talk to them all the time, said, well, we have to be under lockdown for, you know, 12 months, 18 months. And I'm saying, you won't have a country left in 12 to 18 months. I mean, if you literally shut down the entire middle, you know, traditional middle class, and you eliminate a large number of jobs that were done by the working class, you're just going to have some sort of complete social upheaval. Either you're going to have a, a sort of Bernie Sanders kind of Stalinist regime on one hand, or you'll get some sort of 
corporatist authoritarian regime on the other, which I think is probably more likely. Um, you, this republic cannot stand long-term being shut down for 12 to 18 months. There are many things that we could do. Um, I was just reading a very interesting uh, interview with, with the health minister of, of Sweden. There are ways that you can open up at least you know, some things in the economy. Um, many European countries are already reopening factories um, and beginning to let stores open, and in some cases even restaurants with certain restrictions. Um, you know, I, I think you need to be careful, but, but in the current situation, the only winners of this are going to be, A, the people in the bureaucracies and the people in, in, in um, you know, the expert class who can now essentially tell us whether we can breathe or not. Um, and I think the, uh, uh, the other beneficiaries will be the tech oligarchs who are really the powers in this society because as we go more and more out online, as we destroy the last vestiges of independent small business, the only winners are going to be people like Amazon. They're going to be the companies that can afford um, online delivery. Um, and they're going to be eventually Wall Street-backed chains, which will go in and take your, your local taco stand or your family-owned Chinese restaurant and make them parts of chains because the independents aren't going to be able to survive. Yeah, there's a there's a suggestion, too, by some analysts, if if the recovery isn't there in a few months, uh, you're going and, and you've got unemployment at uh, north of 20 percent still. In other words, if it's a an L-shaped recovery, very slow, then you're going to send as much as a one third of mortgages into default. Uh, one and a half times as many foreclosures as occurred after the housing bubble collapsed in 2008. And um, I mean, if you don't have jobs and you're saddled with debt, then you default. And now you're really talking about um, sort of the tearing of the social fabric that that you're describing as people, particularly in the public sector, which is recession proof. We find again, uh, you're going to have, you know, people um, acting desperately in what would be desperate times. Well, and I also think that you may very well see, um, in some cases, um, even eventually, like let's take a university. A university can say, "Oh, well, we'll you know we're going to shut down for eighteen months." How many parents are going to be willing to fork out sixty thousand dollars a year so that kids could stare at a computer screen? That's going to eventually hit the clarity. They just don't. We just don't know when, and they don't seem to be aware of it. Um, I, if you take a look at, at things that may, may you know, happen down the road, you know, the, the uh, states and cities are already in terrible shape, Illinois being among the worst, as you well know. Yes. Um, eventually, you know, the, you're not going to be able to pay people. Um, we're already seeing here in California, which is, you know, in much better shape than Illinois um, fiscally, although not in great shape at all, we're seeing... Um, you know, layoffs. A friend of mine who was city manager of, of Santa Monica just quit. He had to. He 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 was having to do large scale layoffs. So, particularly in states that are already bloated, Illinois, California, New York, New Jersey, um, I think eventually elements of the clerisy will start to to feel the the impact. The own you know the the dynamic is going to be. Do we have this kind of very painful, long recession, um, or 
um, do we end up having to change the very nature of how the, how the society operates in, and move to a society where, you know, the large proportion of the population is completely dependent on, on government subsidies? He is Joel Koch, an internationally recognized authority on global economic, political, and social trends, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It seems like we can't go a show without having to tackle something infuriating coming from Harvard. Uh, the latest HarvardMagazine.com think piece, and I use that term ironically, The Risks of Homeschooling. Uh, a writer from the Mercatus Center uh, pointed out on Twitter that in the graphic that accompanies the piece, in Harvard Magazine, which has a kid in a home with bars on the window, like being homeschooled is to be in prison with all the other kids playing outside. On the uh, side of the house, that's meant to look like book binders with different subjects. One is arithmetic, and it's misspelled. Ah, yes. (laughs) The elites and the elite copy editors at Harvard. Well, this uh, is a profile on the views of Elizabeth Bartholet, the Wasserstein public interest professor of law and the faculty director of Harvard Law School's child advocacy program. Uh, you could say that she is uh, comes to the table with a bit of a platonic mindset. She sees risks for children and society in homeschooling, recommends a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Ban! She says homeschooling violates a children's right to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse. May also keep them from contributing positively to a small D Democrat society. Well, it's real indictment, both children and parents, isn't it? Uh, What we find just by the way, with respect to homeschooling kids, kids that are homeschooled, Uh, We find that they do better on standardized tests, they stick around longer in college, and they do better once they're enrolled in college. They also tend to participate in more extracurricular activities than their private and public school peers. But other than that, oh, and with respect to being protected from potential child abuse, I'm surprised or I'd love to get comment from the good professor, the faculty director of Harvard Law's Child Advocacy Program, about Carol Shakespeare's report on the incidence of sex abuse in public schools that was uh, authored at the beginning of this millennia a millennium where she uh, found that the incidence of sexual abuse uh, superiors authority figures teachers and administrators on kids in the, in the public schools was she guesstimated a hundred times what it was priests in the Catholic Church hundred times the uh, antagonism of the elites to anything that they cannot touch, regulate, direct, oversee, including your children. Remarkable, isn't it? Remarkable.
nosafespaces.com, the documentary put together by Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla about what's happening on college campuses and uh, by whose hands it's happening. They're talking about people like this Elizabeth Bartholet at Harvard Law School. And by the way, check out nosafespaces.com for a limited time. You can stream it. Check out No Safe Spaces, I should say. For a limited time, you can stream it at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Uh, my understanding from uh, the philosophy of government that uh, prevails, particularly in Illinois, is that uh, you are supposed to just try to get as much money as you can, regardless of the source, uh, regardless of the implications, from wherever you can get it. That's serving your constituents. And so when the Senate president sends a letter to the congressional delegation calling for a $41 billion bailout of Illinois, $41 billion in disaster relief for Illinois, they'd say a $20 billion of which would go to state and local pensions. That's called good representation because what government is, is all the governors and all the legislators and all the 50 states just getting into a big wind tunnel money machine and grabbing as much as they can for their constituents. That's good. That's that's good government. The question is, though, and this is so now that we're rethinking all of these things about how our free society is organized and how it will be organized going forward, where our soft spots are, maybe learning some things about uh, our fellow citizens that are good and some things that are not so good. Snitch culture would be on the not so good ledger, as we discussed earlier in the show with Mason County, Michigan Sheriff Kim Cole. What about our philosophy of government? Is that what representation is? That's what it seems like in certain quarters. Are there any implications to that? Hmm. Uh, by the way, this against the backdrop of Illinois' credit being downgraded by Fitch again on Friday to where now we're just a tick above that Nigerian prince that's always emailing you for money. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Bob Post, and he's a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management former chairman of of MFS Investment Management, and he wrote a good piece uh, that we talked a bit about with Victoria Guida from uh, Politico last week. A Fed bailout is wrong for states and cities. Bite your tongue. Bob Posen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. So um, what's wrong with, for example, in Illinois, as you know, largest unfunded pension liabilities in the country, uh, taking this opportunity because the budget has taken an additional hit, as so many as every state budget has, to say, hey, we really need $20 billion right now to uh, prop up our state and local pension funds. That's just good representation. Well, it's uh, very understandable that Illinois uh, representatives are pressing for more money. The question is whether the federal government ought to grant that request. From the federal point of view, you got to look at all of the states, and some of them have done a, a great job at managing their pension funds. Uh, for example, the Wisconsin state system uh, is over 90% funded and uh, uh, has assets to cover most of the 
liabilities. By contrast, in Illinois, last time I looked, it was about 31 or 33%, depending exactly how you calculate it. So I think the federal government would have to balance this and that states like Wisconsin that done a good job would really object if uh, states that had done a poor job of managing their pension liabilities were just bailed out. So I think the key is this. Right now, all of the federal lending money and the federal purchases of bonds is going through the Fed Mm -hmm. through a very complex system that's backed by the U.S. Treasury. In fact, the U.S. Treasury is on the line to uh, absorb all loan losses. Uh, And that's why the Fed so far has focused on, uh, in the municipal area, on just short-term notes uh, where it's very likely, uh, hopefully, to get paid back. But uh, that's why I don't think it's the right thing if the Fed were to extend this program to longer-term municipal bonds or bailouts. Uh, That's the sort of thing Congress ought to debate uh, up front, have an open debate. Obviously, states that did a good job uh, of managing their pension funds would uh, have some real concerns about just bailing out states like Illinois. And uh, I don't know what the result would be, but I think that uh, just to bail, to give money to states that have done a poor job managing their pension funds without conditions would be a really bad thing. And that if that's going to happen, Uh, It should be tied to some pretty strict conditions so that uh, these uh, state systems would really be reformed and become much more viable. Congress seems to have already uh, uh, conceded the issue, right, with uh, the Fed setting up a municipal liquidity facility, which you wrote about, and uh, without any congressional pushback that I've heard. There's a half a trillion dollars there for the Fed to purchase short-term notes, as you were describing, from the biggest cities and states even potentially those who've been mismanaging their finances for years, like, say, Chicago and like, say, Illinois. And so the question in part becomes with respect to uh, those funds or the funds within the funds, what will the credit worthiness standards be? Because that's something that will ultimately be promulgated by the Fed, not Congress, correct? Yeah, for this, this is now a short term program. It involves only notes that are one to two years. Two years is the maximum length. And those notes need to be backed by tax receipts. So it's a very narrow program. But the Fed is, you know, will buy up to 20% of these, 20% of a city's uh, or state's general revenues in this program. And the Fed is not, and this is the big thing, that is not saying in order to participate in this program, you have to have an investment grade rating. They will buy uh, Chicago bonds and other bonds that are not investment grade ratings, but they say that their pricing will reflect the investment status. So presumably, if they're gonna buy bonds from say Wisconsin, they buy them on 100 uh, cents on a dollar. And if they're gonna buy bonds from Illinois, they'd buy them at, I'm just, yeah. this hypothetical number, 90, 92 cents on a dollar, yeah, but here, here's 85 the... cents on a dollar. Depends on what they're trading for. What are those bonds trading for now? And that would that would give you a good indication of what the markets thought the value of those bonds were. Right. But but what they're really doing then is is continuing to encourage bad behavior by allowing 
junk-rated cities like Chicago to continue borrowing against tomorrow to pay for yesterday. It is true. This is definitely a federal short-term bailout. And the only thing you can say for it is it's a time-limited program supposed to end uh, sometime in the fall, and it's concentrated on these short-term notes. It's supposed to be getting through the crisis. But you're right to say the question is whether Congress is now going to respond to Illinois, and I'm sure there'll be lots of other states and cities that will ask for a much broader bailout that will cover its uh, long-term municipal bonds, uh, where the risk of non-payment is much higher. I hope the Fed won't do this unless there's a congressional mandate to do this, and the congressional mandate should come only after a full discussion and full examination of what's happened to these pension plans. It's not like they've uh, become uh, so underfunded uh, because people just made a mistake or they had a problem from the pandemic in the last uh, uh, six months. It's not just true of Illinois. It's true of Kentucky. It's true of uh, Connecticut. uh, It's true of New Jersey. So these states have been negligent in the way they've been conducting these systems for years. And so Congress really have to come to grips with that. And I hope that Congress wouldn't do any sort of bailout without some really strict conditions that would force these pension systems to be substantially reformed. To that effect, and going back to your Puerto Rico example, uh, it's been suggested by some here in Illinois, one of the things that uh, should be done is to tie any sort of underwriting bailout to uh, access to the uh, to federal bankruptcy courts and uh, allowing states to uh, reorganize. I think that Congress will be very reluctant to have a general uh, law that says any state that chooses to can go into bankruptcy and uh, go to bankruptcy court and essentially abrogate uh, its pension obligations. That seems to me uh, uh, <clears throat> a bad uh, decision if Congress were to make it because it sets up a general system without much in the way of constraints. That's why what you saw in Puerto Rico was a special statute which said we're allowing this bankruptcy, but only in this case and only under these uh, series of conditions. And so that's, I think, what you would see coming out of Congress, not saying uh, the bankruptcy, you can just file under the normal bankruptcy. Now, Congress might decide that once it sets up all these conditions and the Treasury uh, Special Commission or board uh, to uh, minister it, uh, then it might say uh, ultimately there needs to be approval by a bankruptcy judge. So that might be an appropriate part of the part of the of the reform. He is Bob Posen. He's a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management, former chairman of MFS Investment Management. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Turns out that, uh, yeah, fitness in general and uh, stay-at-home orders that uh, discourage people from uh, leaving their premises to walk around, uh, not good for health. Professor Shane O'Mara writing in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, he's a professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College in Dublin, 
Recent experiments show that as few as three or four days of inactivity reduces muscle mass in the legs, starting to replace muscle with fat. This isn't much of a problem when you're 30, but it is when you're 60 needing assistance to stand up from your chair. The cure, get up, walk about, and fight the frailty that can come with aging. He notes that um, what we don't realize is that walking can be a kind of behavioral preventative against depression, benefiting us on many levels, physical and psychological. Walking helps to produce protein molecules in muscle and the brain that help repair wear and tear. These muscles and brain molecules have been intensively studied in recent years for their health effects. We're discovering they act almost as a kind of fertilizer that assists in the growth of cells and regulation of metabolism. They also reduce certain types of inflammation. And by, by the way, hospitals, the great irony that uh, all the praise that's being heaped on doctors and nurses by central planners is being undermined by their policies as hospitals are cutting staff, furloughing staff, cutting salaries because of the economics they're now faced with under the strictures of federal and state government. Uh, same thing happening in the fitness industry, like any other business right now. 24-hour fitness, 400 clubs around the country shut down and uh, they're weighing options, including a bankruptcy that could come in as soon as the next few months, according to CNBC's reporting. Okay. For uh, more on the, the topic of the biology, uh, uh, biology in general, we're talking about biology of walking, how about the biology of the virus itself, what we know and what we don't know as we're still learning. That seems clear. We're pleased to be joined by Professor Benjamin Newman. He's the head of the biology department at Texas A&M University, and he has written on the topic at theconversation.com. Professor Newman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So, you know, we everything is to try to provide a frame of reference. Is, is it like the flu? Is it like SARS? Is it like MERS? Tell us uh, what we do know about COVID-19 and uh, what we're still trying to figure out. Yeah, okay. We are learning a lot about the virus itself. Uh, the virus actually is SARS, and um, it, it's uh, SARS coronavirus 2, and it's genetically got all the same parts as SARS. goes into the same cells, seems to do pretty much the same thing. Um, we had a couple really interesting developments, and I think these were just released as preprints on Friday. So they're going through the scientific review process. They're not quite uh, all the way there. But I looked at these things, and I would be surprised if a hair on their head changes. <laughs> um, what these two studies show is uh, part of the reason why it looks like older people tend to get more severe disease than younger people. And uh, the, the reason is just sloppy expression. So down in our lungs, there are all these different kinds of cells. And when we're young, we're really tightly controlling which cells are making the two proteins that are most important for the virus getting in. And as we get older, that control just slips a little bit, as I guess it does in other ways, too, and uh, we start expressing those proteins in more cells. And so you get more cells infected, more disease, harder to clean out, and that seems to be a pretty decent explanation uh, for the uh, dependence of age on uh, disease. Uh, again, in terms of the areas uh, we don't know with respect to the virus, uh, one of the questions is about, uh, uh, well, to put it, uh, to borrow from uh, Shakespeare, UV or not to UV? That is the question. Uh, I'm uh, ABC News. Ultraviolet light may help fight the spread of novel coronavirus. L.A. Times, how UV light may protect us from the coronavirus. Uh, a study out of France. Coronavirus can survive prolonged, can survive prolonged exposure to high temperatures. 
So uh, those are competing conclusions about UV light. What uh, what are we uh, what, what, do we have any real handle on on the impact of weather on the virus? Yeah, so it's not so much weather, but uh, UV light uh, absolutely knocks out viruses. So what it does is um, the virus is actually just a mechanical thing. It's not really alive. It's just a little machine with a bunch of working parts. And anything that you can do, like a little bit of soap or a little bit of one of those hand sanitizers that kind of scrambles those parts around, just moves them to slightly different places, will absolutely wreck this virus. Now, UV works in a different way. So this is uh, going to attack the actual virus genome, so the little piece of RNA that's inside this virus. And what it does is just link together some of the bases. It just makes little tiny knots, <laughs> basically ties the virus in knots. And once that happens, if you get even a single one of those in the part that the virus needs to read, that virus is dead. It cannot be copied. It cannot start an infection. So UV is uh, super effective against the virus. And, uh, yeah, we've known about this for a long time. It's a good thing to use. Uh, heat is, uh, it depends on what you mean by heat. So in the laboratory, if you heat up this virus to about 50 degrees Celsius, which would be well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, there are a couple proteins that fall apart. They basically pop like popcorn. And once that happens, again, the machine just doesn't work anymore. Um, but uh, temperatures like normal weather temperatures that we would experience in Chicago or even in Texas are not going to knock out this virus. And the most important thing is that the weather inside of a human body is always 98.6 and uh, sunny, for want of a better word. Hmm. And that's all the virus ever sees. Have you been surprised by the... Um the uh, reports of uh, reinfection in places like South Korea, where somebody had it, then they tested negative, then uh, allegedly they've been reinfected and calling into question just how effective uh, the antibodies that are developed after you have the virus are to preventing infection. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's two parts of that one. One, we don't know that anybody's ever actually been reinfected. Mm -hmm. So in the early days, they were releasing people from hospital uh, and what we know now is that most of those people would still have some virus in them at the point when they are clinically recovered and feel like they're well enough to go home. And so what they're doing in China right now is a thing called a fecal test um, because the virus is going to hang out in your intestines as long as it hangs out in any other part of the body. And so that's an easy place to sample. And as long as you're virus negative there for a couple of days, then we know you're safe to go home. But if there's still virus inside you, yeah, it can potentially flare back up. Now, on the antibody side, yes, we're getting in the first um, indications that some people, but not everybody, actually makes a strong immune response. Uh, some people that have mild COVID-19 don't seem to make the right kind of immune response that would protect them against reinfection. So I think it's very much a possibility. We just don't have a good documented case where this has happened for sure yet. All right. My uh, freshman biology teacher, Gary Goforth, is going to be so happy I had you on the show. He's very impressed. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, Benjamin Newman, Professor Benjamin Newman, he's the head of biology at Texas A&M University. Uh, Professor Newman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Happy to help. Thanks for having me. It's the number one political documentary of 2019. It's No Safe Spaces, produced by our colleague and friend Dennis Prager, as well as Adam Carolla, putting together a story of the assault on free speech that's happening in American society, on college campuses, through social media platforms, of course, in Hollywood. No Safe Spaces uh, details this. It also provides instruction as to what you can do 
to stand for free minds and free speech in a free society, that free society called America. Check it out now while you have some downtime. Watch it with the family. No Safe Spaces for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I want to go back to this uh, interview that uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand guy forever, Charlie Munger, gave to the Wall Street Journal, giving uh, his perspective and, by extension, Warren Buffett's. Well, I would say basically we're like the captain of a ship when the worst typhoon that's ever happened comes, said Charlie Munger. We, we just want to get through the typhoon, and we'd rather come, of, come out of it with a whole lot of liquidity. We're not playing, oh, goody, goody, everything's going to hell. Let's plunge 100% of the reserves into buying businesses. We want to be on the safe side, he said. And uh, the reason is because, uh, unlike politicians, Charlie Munger recognizes what he doesn't know. Nobody in America has ever seen anything like this, said Munger. The thing is, diff- this thing is different. Everybody talks as if they know what's going to happen and nobody knows what's going to happen. He does um, strike just the uh, hintest note of optimism, the slightest hint, I should say, of optimism when he says uh, he doesn't believe we're in for an extended depression. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by William Cohen, who is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and New York Times bestselling author of The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frere's uh, and Company, The Price of Silence, and Why Wall Street Matters. William Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Nice to be here. Thank you. So uh, when you hear Charlie Munger say uh, we're like the captain of a ship just trying to get to the other side of the typhoon, uh, what does that tell you about um, the attitude of, of Buffett and the financial sector and those who look to the Oracle of Omaha for guidance? Well, it makes me a little nervous because he's got $125 billion of cash on his balance sheet. The piece that I uh, wrote last week for Vanity Fair was about how last time this happened, way back in 2008, Buffett was sort of on the front lines of saying it was okay, that everything was going to work out just fine. He you know, invested relatively quickly $5 billion into Goldman Sachs and $3 billion into GE and then a couple years later, another $5 billion into Bank of America as sort of a signal to investors, to the American people, that you know he had confidence that as bad as it looked back then, and remember it looked pretty bad, and people were scared that sort of quote-unquote capitalism as we know it was going to go down the tubes, uh, Warren Buffett uh, was there to sort of reassure us like a, a, a wizened uh, you know, grandfather saying you know, everything was going to be okay. Now Charlie Munger, who's nearly 100 and who's pretty much seen it all, is saying that he's not sure where this is going to end up. And, you know, I respect him for being that honest about it. And he probably doesn't. He's right. We've not seen anything quite like this before. To me, the fact that uh, Buffett, you know, is staying on the sidelines with this $125 billion of cash and not sort of plunging in. And, he, you know, Munger also said in that interview that, 
you know, their phone hasn't been ringing, which right. surprises me as well. Right. So that sort of gives me pause a little bit about where what kind of damage is still uh, awaiting us in all of this. There are some dynamics that are similar, but obviously not the, the, the well, as Charlie Munger says, not like the, the idea that we're all frozen in time. It's just like it, everything, the attempt by the government here is to cryogenically freeze everything, whereas in 08, you mentioned uh, uh, his infusion into Goldman Sachs, Warren Buffett's, you know, that was after um, uh, or uh, concurrent with the government backing AIG so that Goldman wouldn't fail. So we've seen those these sorts of uh, interventions by the government before, but not in the context of everything being sort of frozen in place. And that's the wild card, it seems. This, to me, uh, is sort of a weird but different combination of what happened in 2008, uh, where there was a financial crisis, and after 9-11, where there was clearly a, an existential emotional crisis. This is and a health crisis. This is a combination of a health crisis, only obviously much worse and much more widespread than 9-11, but, you know, equally kind of scary. Uh, With a financial crisis, it seems that it's going to be much worse than 2008. You know, obviously 2008 was in the the left ventricle of capitalism, uh, you know, on Wall Street, and there was a huge concerned that, as I said, capitalism, as we know, was going to go down the tubes. Uh, and there was clearly a recession. The, the, the stock market, you know, fell dramatically, reaching a low of 6,500 in March of 2009. Uh, even now, we're like still around three and a half, almost four times that uh, place. Although uh, I think, you know, between uh, the high unemployment is coming. The dramatically lower uh, uh, earnings that we're going to start hearing about now for the next few weeks. This clearly uh, has the signs of something worse. Well, when we come back uh, with William Cohen, I want to uh, pick up the other half of the piece in Vanity Fair that uh, discusses Warren Buffett, and that's discussing Bill Ackman, who came to some national profile after it was perceived that he did a bit of a smash and grab with respect to what he was arguing for in terms of response to the viral outbreak. More with William Cohen, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, New York Times bestselling author of The Last Tycoons, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with William Cohen. He's special correspondent for Vanity Fair and the New York Times, best-selling author of The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frayers and Company, The Price of Silence, and Why Wall Street Matters. And uh, William Cohen, we were talking about your piece in Vanity Fair on Warren Buffett, and you also mentioned that perhaps Bill Ackman, the founder of Pershing Square Capital, a a billionaire in his own right, uh, he may be uh, filling the void of... uh, financial policy leadership left by Warren Buffett, although he was the subject of much criticism uh, earlier in the month after he called for a a national shutdown, at least through the end of April, if I'm remembering correctly. And then it was reported he made uh, a lot of money shorting the market. And so the question was, did he was he doing a bit of a, a smash and grab trying to drive the market down to profit? And if so, does that put him in the best position to uh 
be uh, listened to by Main Street. Well, I, I, I like that expression, smash and grab. I've uh, researched this quite a bit, and um, I think that's unfair, actually. It would have been better, I think, Bill been more explicit in his March 18th CNBC interview mm-hmm. you know, that he had gotten so worried about the spread of the coronavirus uh, uh, to this country and globally uh, uh, in late February that he had uh, bought or essentially hedged his uh, long stock portfolio, uh, five-plus billion dollars, by buying credit default swaps, buying insurance on uh, credit indexes that, you know, as credit spreads widened, as people perceive debt being riskier than they had been perceiving it, which is exactly what happened, uh, these hedges would become more and more valuable. And that is what happened. Uh, he, he predicted that correctly. He did a great service for his investors and himself. Uh, he turned a $27 million uh, hedging uh, strategy into a profit of $2.6 billion in about three weeks. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, you know, he made a lot of money from uh, the rest of our misery, which is sometimes the way it, way it goes. Sure. Uh, 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 but by the time he, uh, you know, started tweeting on March 18th and then appeared on CNBC after his tweets, he had already uh, uh, sold half of his uh, position and was in the, you know, in the process of selling the rest, which would uh, require another five days. Um, he should have probably uh, been more explicit about that, but I, I really don't think he was, you know, smashing and grabbing, uh, talking his book. Um, he, he, he had actually let his investors know that uh, he had put the hedge on, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in early March, and then uh, that he was removing it uh, and try, starting to sell the, the credit default swaps that he had bought uh, by the time he appeared on CNBC. So. Uh, look, I mean, Bill has gotten a lot of criticism for a lot of things over the years, and and, and much of it uh, deserved. But this is one instance where I think uh, he could have done a better job of communicating what he was up to. Uh, he, you know, he did a very good job, I think, of communicating the uh, uh, increasing danger of this situation that that. Uh, was not being uh, taken seriously enough in Washington, uh, and I think that's what he was begging uh, for Washington and leadership in the White House to do uh, in, in that interview. Um, uh, you know, he had already put in place, you know, his own uh, strategy to protect his investors and himself, which proved to be uh, quite a good strategy. Speaking of uh, people who've uh, done well in uh, dark times, Alan Lands, who uh, profited in both the 87 and 2008 crashes, uh, he uh, wrote in his newsletter, the next 45 days may just become the most critical period in U.S. financial history. Uh, this is uh, no uh, unlike no other bear market, he said. Even if we execute properly, the recovery will take time. And the best case scenario is a U-shaped recovery. The much talked about V-shaped recovery, meaning, you know, quick recovery, uh, is no longer in the equation because of the unprecedented combination of negatives with this crisis. Is that uh, uh, outside of sort of people wanting to be optimistic for uh, for psychological as well as political reasons? 
Is that basically the handle on Wall Street that the best case scenario, if things go very well, is a U-shaped recovery, meaning a fairly slow recovery? Well, you know, Dan, I, th- I think the interesting thing here is that really uh, this is a case where nobody, nobody knows, knows anything. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I don't know how to evaluate that uh, uh, prediction. Uh, you know, it could look like a swoosh, a Nike swoosh, which sort of, you know, gradual sort of recovery. Uh, I know that there's a lot, uh, there's bound to be a huge amount uh, of pent-up demand uh, when this is over, and people are going to, once they realize it's safe, uh, you know, and some people are angling for that already, obviously, but once people realize it is safe and there's testing and there's all sorts of things that they're trying to do that haven't happened yet, I think people are, are quite anxious to get back to their normal life. Uh, and and, the, so. and the, the good news on that front, it seems to me, too, if they're you know, trying to look for silver linings, uh, again, in the Journal on Friday, an interesting piece about the nature of the, the layoffs uh, in 2020 as compared to 2008, where in 20, 2008 it was we are, we are laying off and we are not going to be rehiring. We're rethinking how our company is structured. Whereas at least right now, it seems to be the disposition of most that uh, we're frozen, trying to weather the storm. But the intention is, if we can, to reopen, to rehire or to maintain the people on the payroll that we have on the payroll currently and to restart our business like it was Jan 1 uh, in May 1 or June 1 or whenever it is. Well, that's right. And and the design of the small business administration loans, this 350 billion dollar fund that they're trying to replenish mm-hmm. is all designed to make loans to small businesses so that they can keep paying people on their payroll. So this idea of people being furloughed for a period of time, an extended holiday, uh, or cutting people's pay 25 or 50 percent during this period of time for a period of months is all part of this idea that, okay, you know, uh, uh, there's this glimmer of hope at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. He is William Cohn, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, New York Times bestselling author of The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frere's uh, and Company, also The Price of Silence, and Why Wall Street Matters. William Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Did you uh, catch the One World Together at Home two-hour primetime concert? Where's Bob Geldof when you need it? I didn't watch, but I saw enough clips of the performances and the speechifying to be happy that I didn't watch the whole thing. For example, this from uh, some British celebutant about, uh, you know, the typical, the typical sop to world government, specifically the World Health Organization. We're also here because Global Citizen and the World Health Organization have been working behind the scenes for weeks to raise millions for the Solidarity Response Fund. This fund enables individuals, corporations and institutions to come together to directly contribute to response efforts, tackling the spread of the virus and ensuring frontline workers get essential supplies. Yeah, Johnny Oleksinski, the entertainment critic for the New York Post, seemed to sort of capture uh, my 
visceral response in a, a more detailed critique. Uh, Saturday's two-hour primetime concert achieved the impossible. It made us feel even worse about our already miserable circumstances. The insufferable show pieced together saintly speeches from A-list celebrities and somber UN officials between womp-womp acoustic ballads. Didn't we tune in for some uplift? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nearly every musician opted for the saddest, most obvious tune they could muster, while lucky us giving a shaky tour of their fabulous homes that would make Robin Leach scowl. He talks about John Legend's uh, trophy case in the background and the uh, sprawling estate of one Ellen DeGeneres and so forth. And then it just, you know, the mindless pap that you get from these uh, empty-headed celebrities, (laughs) Jennifer Lopez. There's one thing I realized during this whole time, and that's that we all need each other. People! So powerful, so profound. Oh... I'm glad I missed it, and I hope you missed it, too, for your own mental health. As you, <laughs> Didn't we already feel miserable? Uh, didn't we already feel bad enough about our miserable circumstances, Johnny Oleksinski in the New York Post? Uh, speaking of um, miserable celebrities, uh, they're one of the reasons free speech is under assault in this country. Hollywood, yes. Academic institutions, college campuses, yes. Social media platforms, yes. Enforced orthodoxy of opinion. The uh, one world together at home, one world together in terms of mindset, that's the problem. And that's the attitude of the elites in Hollywood and elsewhere, for that matter. That's so documented by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla in their documentary, No Safe Spaces, which uh, has been... uh, essentially blacklisted by Hollywood, much like some Prager University videos on YouTube. But you can watch it for a limited time now. You can live stream it at nosafespaces.com. Take advantage of this downtime to educate yourself about uh, the assault on free speech that's happening uh, within uh, many of our civic institutions and what you can do to combat it. No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Thank you again for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prop Show. Please do again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.